Romans 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... (coughs) Though they were not yet born and had done, nothing, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, And he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man of God, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honourable use And another for dishonourable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has promised beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What should we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you keep your Bibles open, um, the kids are going to go out to their groups. Father God, would you move amongst us? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, make true uh, to us the words that you have spoken and uh, help us to believe upon them, uh, to be changed by them, and to, um, to praise you as a result. Amen. I've got a question. If God was to save you, what does it depend on? What does it depend on? If God was to save you, what does it depend on? Is it your upbringing or your education? Is it how you've lived, the choices you've made? Good choices, bad choices. Well, Paul, in this letter, has been going to great lengths to convince us that God's saving is a done deal. It is finished. From start to finish, he's done it. We've heard stuff like Jesus being the final word on his people. And that the law, which would condemn us, is now the new best friend. The spirit is groaning for a certain future and a glorious inheritance. God has said it, and so it's guaranteed. Last week, we heard the amazing assurance in the end of Romans 8 that absolutely nothing can separate Christians from the love of God. That's a promise. Paul's a Jew. And there were some Jews in the church of Rome, the people he's writing to. And they'd want to say right about now, hang on Paul, didn't God make that promise about Abraham's descendants? First, that's us. And Paul speaks about this Jewish nation as a whole with great sorrow in verses 1 to 5, you can see it there. Part of the tragedy is that the Jews had so much going for them. If you look down that list in verses 1 to 5, this list is all the things that pointed them to a true relationship with God. The scriptures, the temples, the messengers. Put in today's terms, these people were brought up in a Christian home with knowledge of the Bible, going to church, hearing great sermons. So what went wrong? Was it the promise that didn't work? Was it the promise that failed? Well, I hope you can see that this isn't just a question for Paul or for Jews in Rome. It makes all the difference to whether we can trust God's plans and his promises. And it also means, is God's gospel word 
powerful enough to save today? Or will it fail? Well, Paul starts his answer with verse 6. If you've got your Bibles, it'd be great to have them out in front of you. I'll give you this one. Paul starts his answer with verse 6. God's word hasn't failed. That's Paul's conclusion. I think he's going to give us a bit more information uh, to help us to understand. You look with it in Romans 9 verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God did make a promise to Abraham. So Paul takes us to the first two generations after him. And he does this to show how different God's promise was from being about our family, our pedigree, or our performance even. It was always about God's decision, not ours. Okay? These are the first two generations. You can have a look up for this bit. Is it based on your family, your pedigree? Lots of people think you're born into a religious club. Is that what the Bible teaches? I see some shaking your heads. Um, in verse 6 it says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. See, Abraham had two sons, didn't he? The first was with a slave girl called Hagar, and later with his wife Sarah. But the promise in verse 7 clearly says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And later in verse 9, for this is what God's promise said, about this time next year I will return and who? Sarah shall have a son. The promise to Sarah that through Isaac your offspring shall be named. God had made Abraham a promise, and that promise was to save a people for himself. It would first start with Isaac, and it would one day lead all the way to Jesus. But the promise was never about who your parents were. You can have Abraham as your father, like Ishmael did. You can be the child of a pastor. The basis for anyone being saved is God's promise. Can you see that? And not your religious pedigree. Not your family. So that's the first generation. Next generation and two more sons. Uh, They have the same mother, Rebecca. In fact, these two are even twins. Jacob and Esau. Again, we see God's promise to save. God confirms it to Rebekah. In verse 11, he says, um, they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, but Rebekah is told in verse 12, the older will serve the younger. Before they're even born. It's not what we expect, is it? Usually, the, I don't know if it's just the case in your family, the older sibling automatically has all the benefits coming to him. That's quite a cultural thing. That's fairly widespread. The older son. I'm going to be having a son. He will be looking to have those privileges, I'm sure. But as you read on... So it's, it's, it's not what we expect. 
And if you read on further in Jacob's life, it is even more surprising, even shocking. Because Jacob doesn't turn out to be Mr. Nice Guy or Mr. Good or Mr. Popular. Actually, the only success he achieves is cheated from his brother and by lying to his father. He's a nasty piece of work. He doesn't deserve anything. But the promise that God gave came through Jacob and not Esau. Verse 11 ends by explanation. If you look at it there, it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And so it is not because of works, but because of him who calls. God's promise, again, is not because of works. If it was based on performance, Jacob, Jacob wouldn't be in. It has to be based on the promise that God gave. You see that? Another generation, not based on performance either. We're starting to learn a bit about God's promise here, aren't we? It's not what we expect. So, in answer to the question we had, has the promise of God failed? Well, we can say, no, it hasn't, because the promise was different. It wasn't to everyone. It was always given to some. And it didn't fail. Um, God's purpose in this will be something that Paul talks about a bit later on in this chapter. So hold on to that. But in summary, Paul has proven that God's promise isn't concerned with your family privilege. It's not based on that. So to go back to our earlier question, if God is to save you, what, what would it depend on? Can you see it must have zero to do with your your privileges, your family. God's promise isn't based on cultural family ties. It's not about human convention. It must be about divine intervention. We've seen that, haven't we? God intervenes. He goes against the grain. And it has zero to do with what you've done as well. In fact, it goes completely against what anyone truly deserves. And it's it's not even someone's ability to choose God. This is really important. Someone said this, he says, God does not choose us because we believe, but in order that we may believe. God does not choose us because we believe, but in order that we may believe. But saving has everything to do with God's promise. We've seen that, haven't we? If God never made such a promise, can you see we would rightly expect that no one would be saved? Why would we expect that? The promise shows us that saving can only ever be God's merciful choice. Saving can only ever be God's merciful choice. Paul summarises all this in verse 15. If you, if you want to catch up with us, jump to verse 15. Uh, With God's words to Moses, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but entirely on God who has mercy. 
it just depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Um, you might like to know that these are actually Moses' words to... This, these words up here are actually God's words, God's reply to Moses, just after the awful episode where the whole community of God were caught in the act of idol worship. Not a great day. Moses had just come down the mountain. What are the people up to? Praising! Yay! Oh no, this is not a praise party. This is idol worship, okay? What, were the, what the whole community deserved that day was to be destroyed, wiped out. And that's what happened to a group numbering 3,000 strong. So anyone left standing that day would know this is, this is not my good today. This is sheer mercy. So, so in summary, Paul uses these words that God says, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And it's in the context of everyone deserving judgment. Okay? That's important because when we start to ask the question, is God fair to choose? Well, fair would be for everyone to get what they deserve, wouldn't it? Um, so in answer to the question of verse 14 which was, is there injustice on God's part? Is God being unfair? Paul can emphatically say, by no means. First of all, God hasn't been unfaithful to his promise. So he can't be accused of scamming anybody or empty words. God's promise to save, we've seen, is entirely God's choice. He intervenes. To save. It goes against the grain of our behaviour and of the way that we would want to go. But this, of course, means that God chooses not to intervene. If he chooses to intervene, it means he chooses not to intervene. You see? Paul will deal with this from verse 17 with the example of Pharaoh. But before we get to him, let's talk about the act of choosing. Okay, I've got some fun illustrations to wake us up. Let's talk about the act of choosing. We, uh, we do it all the time, we choose. You chose which seat to sit in. You chose which person to talk to when you came in. You chose who to sit next to. We choose. And what you're doing when we're choosing is we're preferring one over another. Our language may not use such stark terms as Hebrew did to call it love and hate but we choose we choose people we choose friends we choose we prefer Um, so this was uh, not me thankfully on my wedding day Um, but Hannah she's not here so that's fine Um, and no one came to me that day and said Rob you're really out of order, mate. That's, that's really unfair. This is actually Hannah's twin sister. She looks just as lovely. Doesn't she? Yeah. It's that, you know, 
Rob, you're being unfair. You chose to marry Hannah. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have done that. That's wrong. No, because that would be weird, wouldn't it? So my act of choosing actually showed my love for Hannah. That was the main point. They would be missing the main point of the wedding if they came to me and they said, oh, hang about, Rob. Why didn't you marry the other bridesmaids? Why didn't you marry all of them? That's not what it looks like, is it? So we choose. We do choose. And in choosing, choosing, we forego the other choices. Okay? I'm just helping you to understand that. Um, well, what about this choice? Tomorrow morning... Uh, oh. Tomorrow morning, uh, you might pour yourself a, a bowl of cornflakes. And maybe what you could do when you tuck into that bowl of cornflakes is to point at the box of Weetabix that was on the table and say, I hate you. Because you are choosing one over the other. Yeah? I'm just being jo- jokey here, but, you know, that's the language that's being used here. It's preferring one over the other, and it's important to see that. We choose. Uh, but back to Pharaoh. This is the example we're given. And verse 17, Scripture says to Pharaoh... It says this. Oh, maybe I've got that. It says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Think about it. If all mankind are bent on rebellion against God... All it would require for anyone to face that judgment is for God not to intervene or save. That's a scary thought, but that's all it would take, surely. If everyone is heading for rebellion and judgment, all it would require is for God not to intervene and save. For God to not to intervene, we would continue and become settled in our unbelief. That's the truth of it. We might even keep hearing the need for rescue and the solution in Jesus time and time again. But we could still reject it. Well, Paul anticipates some pushback. And it's there in verse 20. It says, why, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? Is that the right verse? Yeah. Um, Verse 19, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? And if you look at verse 20, this might even be from those already opposed to God who could say this, why did you make me like this? Yeah, so there's Pharaoh asking that question. Which I think is why, instead of Paul being gentle in verse 20, he goes on the front foot. Because if these are words of people who are already opposing God... Paul wants to, um, his questions are designed to shock the arrogant, okay? Why did you make me like this? Paul puts in focus who we are in relation to God, doesn't he? If you look at at his questions for, for us, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for a dishonourable use. It's just a picture, but the, 
the point is clear, isn't it? The potter has every right to make. And he decides what he's going to do. So the point is, God has every right to do what he wants. And although Paul will not presume to know the full mind of God, he does put forward some answers from Scripture. So if you, if you, if that, if you want some answers, here are some suggestions, okay? Um, verse 22 is much like the message to Pharaoh in verse 17. We'll spend some time thinking about this verse. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with such patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Enduring with such patience. Well, this was certainly the case with Pharaoh. Nine times God gave Pharaoh his warning. Every plague only came following a warning. Nine times God gave Pharaoh a warning. Pharaoh, do you want to stand up against me? Do you want to stand up against me? Do you want to stand up against me? Um, and each time, actually, God gives a foretaste to Pharaoh, doesn't he, of what his final judgment will look like. So we can say that it's never without immense patience that God brings his wrath and his judgment. Never without immense patience. The very fact that, there are, that we're all still sitting here is proof of that. But we also get another answer, don't we? In the second half, it says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So the end result of anyone opposing God, Pharaoh, will be God's glory. Through Pharaoh, God said he would make known his wrath, power and patience so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And so can you see that the end result of even God's judgment on one will be the saving of many. We see this idea again at the end of verse 23. It says, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. If you look at verses 24 to 26, there's actually some quotes from the prophet Hosea. Um, it says, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. Those who are not loved, I will call them loved. And the people who are not my people will be called sons of the living God. This is all promises that many people, more people, the nations will hear about the glory of God. God's making known to the nations what he is like. His wrath, his power and his patience, yes. But the riches of his glory 
her vessels of mercy. Can you see that? So we do have some answers from scripture. Can you see how powerful God is? He can arrange things in such a way that even the defiance of one man can bring about the saving of many others. Pharaoh. Well, what does this mean for us? Maybe you're new to church and you've always thought of church really as being for good folk who have chosen a good path. Can you see now that it's actually the opposite? Christians aren't good folk. They haven't chosen a good path. They're just like everyone else. They're not saved by their own good ideas. They are saved only by the sheer mercy of God who takes people out of darkness. And so for you or anyone else, it would require nothing more than the sheer mercy of God to make you safe for eternity. Will you ask him? Uh, maybe you're, you've been around church a while, you've even got a badge. From this passage, can you see it's pretty dangerous to be complacent? The Jews thought they were in the club. They had more badges than you. There are many who assumed that because of their advantages, these advantages, they were in the kingdom of God. But no one is automatically safe for eternity. So don't think that you are. The stumbling blocks actually for the religious was Jesus. We see that towards the end, don't we? Let me read from verse 27. Um, Mind you, some Bibles to the guys at the back. Is it on the screen? No, it's not on the screen. If you can pass them over. Um, We're just reading from verse 27 of Romans. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith in the promise. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stumbling block for the religious was Jesus. Their problem, in verse 32, was that they saw everything as being based on their works and not God's mercy. If you think it's based on works, it's definitely not based on mercy. And it may be the same for you or for me. 
You may not want to accept that Jesus had to die for your sins, because to do so would be to see your sin as so offensive, and it removes all your pride and your confidence in yourself. Doesn't it? Well, maybe you're a real believer. There are some. I guess there have been moments reading this where you felt uncomfortable. Have you felt uncomfortable? Before you jump into legal secretary mode, first, will you see what effect this truth has on Paul? Let's look back at verses 1 to 5. Paul says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says in verse 2 that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish that he could even wish to be cut off from Christ for the sake of his Jewish brothers. And the question is, I think, can you see that this truth doesn't make Paul out to be insensitive or even proud? It first makes him deeply moved to see others saved. It deepens his love for others. Have you ever felt a kind of heartache, a dull ache for a family member or a colleague or a friend, that they would be sitting where you are right now? Have you ever felt that dull ache in your heart? That isn't something to throw out or to push away. That's, that's God-given. Okay. Um, and secondly... It deep, well, firstly, it deepens his love for people. And secondly, it deepens Paul's praise of God's mercy. So to understand this, to really grasp this, is to, will deepen your praise. Because if you look at what it says in verse 29, the only real alternative to God's choosing to save If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If if Israel hadn't been left any offspring um, to tell them, to warn them, um, then they would have all been destroyed. So the only real alternative to God choosing to save you or anyone is for everyone, to, no one to be saved. Um, So it deepens Paul's praise of God's mercy. Um, And this is the shocking realisation that if if God does not act, then things will go from bad to worse. And in the end, everyone will face judgement. And it leaves us joyfully praising the mercy of the God who would save even one. This is meant to humble us. God and nothing in us saves the promise of God is enough to save the word of God the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough to save 
It may be there are questions on how this plays out, particularly in evangelism. So we'll have some time for a few thoughts now, uh, after we pray. But this will be the focus of our time together on Tuesday, so I hope you can make that. And then we can talk over some questions. I'm going to pray. God, we um, recognise that, um, that the, the saving that you have done through the generations was entirely your choice and your promise. It's based on that. We, we know that we, in our human way of thinking, think that we can contribute something to make that happen but really we're kidding ourselves and we're denying just how sinful we are and what it would what it would require for us to be shown your mercy so I pray that this truth um, about your promise to save and that alone would make us people who are more thankful that you would show us mercy and more uh, longing for those uh, around us to hear this same truth and to turn and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.